9.30 a.m., Saturday, September 20th, 1980, Olathe, Kansas. A huge blast at 901 Van Mar Drive tears through the home of Robert Post, 51, and his wife, Norma Jean Post, 47. A neighbor runs outside to find a body blown into his backyard and body parts littering the rubble of the two-story ranch-style house. Only a chimney and part of the living room remains standing. The explosion is felt for blocks in the quiet, middle-class neighborhood. Dead at the scene are Robert, Norma Jean, daughters, Diane and Susan, 19 and 20, and son Richard, 21. The county attorney announces the deaths are being investigated as homicides. Quote, we are pretty certain that there was a bomb, unquote. Listeners, welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate, so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Listeners, I do need to give a content warning for this episode. Just what you've heard so far is appalling, but it gets worse. Young children and the family dog are also in the house when the explosion occurs. I won't dwell on any graphic details, but I think it's important to know how horrendous this crime was. So I understand if you'd rather skip this case. This is your chance right now. Three, two, one. Okay, if you're still here, I'm going to talk about murder now. In addition to the five people who were killed instantly in the blast, there are others at the post home that Saturday morning. David, 18, another son, is upstairs asleep when his bed is blown halfway out of the house. A neighbor finds him standing wrapped in a sheet in shock. In critical condition but still alive, our little brother James just turned 10 years old his friend Craig Weber, almost nine, and Diane's four-month-old baby, Randy Crump. They are transported to Olathe Community Hospital not far away. James dies shortly after arrival at the hospital. Craig celebrates his ninth birthday in the intensive care unit at the hospital. Baby Randy is blown into a neighbor's yard by the blast. He and Craig will be reported in fair condition by Monday. Police, sifting through the debris, uncover the family cocker spaniel, not seriously injured. The survivors of the explosion all recover. They don't just survive, they thrive. Robert and Norma Jean, who like to be called Jeannie, 
had 10 children. Robert was retired from the U.S. Air Force and worked at Whirlpool in Lenexa, Kansas. Jeannie worked for Montgomery Ward at Oak Park Mall in Overland Park, Kansas. The baby's mother, Diane, just started working in Lenexa too at J.C. Penney Warehouse. Those places are all in the Kansas City metro area. The family was very close, decent, hardworking. Listeners, I know that people don't like to speak ill of the dead, but from what all the neighbors and friends and the way the rest of the family behaves in the aftermath of the tragedy, I think the posts really are that huge, wonderful family, lively, fun, helpful, the kind you would love to have as neighbors. Olathe, Kansas is a city in Johnson County, Kansas, southwest of Kansas City. If you're not familiar with the area, Kansas City is a large metropolitan area of about 2 million people that straddles the Missouri River. This means the KC metro area really refers to parts of two different states, Missouri and Kansas. Starting in the 20th century, the urban area of Kansas City spread south and west into Johnson County, Kansas, gobbling up surrounding little towns. Much of Johnson County is now a built-up extension of Kansas City. If you are driving along, it's hard to tell where Kansas City stops and Johnson County begins, except that houses and businesses tend to get newer and fancier as you get away from the city center. The Johnson County metro area includes several little cities that all run together. Johnson County is a very well-to-do county with a population of about 500,000 and a median income of over 80,000 U.S. dollars. Nowadays, if you head southwest from KC down Interstate 35, Suburbia just keeps going and going. You pass by Olathe with housing development after housing development set into cow pastures. There's a joke that the main crops in once rural Olathe are now $300,000 houses and convenience stores. Since 1980, the population of Olathe has more than tripled. In 1980, Olathe was starting to become a bedroom community where many of the residents commute to Kansas City for work, like the Posts. But the population was only about 35,000, and the city wasn't nearly as upscale as it is now. Still, Olathe in 1980 was just not the kind of place anyone would expect a bombing to occur. All that's known about the murders initially is that a bomb of some kind is involved. The newspaper reports and the court documents don't include specific details about the bomb, like what it consisted of, how it was built, or how it was detonated. The most I could find about the bomb in this case is that a package containing 10 sticks of dynamite is placed on the hood of a vehicle in front of the post house about 2.30 a.m. that Saturday, September 20th, 1980. Someone carried the package into the house and the package exploded when somebody opened it. The exact mechanism that set off the dynamite, I can't tell you. Somehow the package is booby-trapped. Full disclosure, I was really curious about that. If I wanted to make a bomb, how would I do it? And I really looked, listeners. You know how people say, the internet is so unregulated, you can find plans to build a nuclear bomb online. Well, not so much. I guess there's the dark web and other places where maybe you can find stuff like that. But I am not messing around in there. I wouldn't even know where to start. Google the dark web, whatever. I did add how to build a bomb and a few other 
interesting things like that to some of my other suspicious searches, like how to dismember a body, and can you put a body in a wood chipper? So, if the NSA and FBI weren't already monitoring me, maybe they are now. Listeners, that is one of my dreams, to be interesting enough to be on the radar of our national security and law enforcement agencies. Honestly, listeners, I don't even know how to begin to use dynamite. There is information about dynamite out there on the web. Definitely a warning here. Don't take anything I say as advice on using explosives, but I did learn a few things. I think. Now, not a chemist or a physicist. This is from a kind of fun website called wonderopolis.org. The explosive part of dynamite is nitroglycerin, but nitroglycerin is very unstable, and lots of things can make it explode when you don't want it to. So dynamite is actually nitroglycerin mixed in with a lot of a very soft, chalky stone called diatomaceous earth. D-I-A-T-O-M-A-C-E-O-U-S. Besides dynamite, diatomaceous earth is also used to make kitty litter. Doing that makes it harder to set off the nitroglycerin. Actually, this process to make the nitroglycerin safer to handle and safer to detonate was invented by Alfred Nobel. It wasn't his intention, but this did lead to weapons of war becoming much more destructive and much easier to use. It is said that Alfred felt bad about this, and that's why he used his fortune to endow the Nobel Prizes for Chemistry, Literature, Peace, Physics, and Medicine. The dynamite is formed into a stick and put into a cardboard cylinder. A stick of dynamite weighs about half a pound, 190 grams. If you set this on fire, it won't blow up. Okay, probably, but please don't try that. The stick needs a blasting cap to explode. The blasting cap is a little disc packed with a tiny amount of explosive. Originally, this would be a pinch of gunpowder. If you look at a conventional stick of dynamite, and I just looked at a picture, but the cap has a fuse or a wire, kind of like the wick of a candle coming out of it, and it's set down a little, the cap, into the dynamite cylinder. When the fuse is lit and burns down to the cap, it causes a little explosion. This causes little shock waves, which make the nitroglycerin in the dynamite explode. Apparently, hitting the dynamite really hard can also detonate it. They test by dropping heavy weights on it from various heights, and don't do that either. In fact, just a rule of thumb, stay away from dynamite unless you're trained to handle it safely. You can also set off the blasting cap with an electrical current, like from a battery. I think that's what you'd have to do for a booby trap type bond, like what we're talking about. How powerful is dynamite? Well, in a word, extremely. If you put one stick down into a big rock, a yard wide and a yard tall, or a meter wide and a meter tall. A stick of dynamite will blow it into tiny little pieces. The bomb in this case was 10 sticks of dynamite. So anyone next to the bomb 
when it goes off is instantly killed. Now the shock waves from the explosion drop off in power very quickly as you move out from the bomb itself, even just five or six feet away. That's why there are survivors in this case. The package was opened in the kitchen of the Post's house. At trial, witnesses give a pretty clear picture of the scene. 9.30 a.m. on a nice Saturday morning, several members of the family sitting around the kitchen table, chatting and drinking coffee. The younger kids are playing outside and running in and out. The babies, I'm guessing, in a baby carrier nearby, maybe in the living room. Somebody brings the package in and sets it on the kitchen table. It's addressed to Diane Crump, one of the daughters, and marked Handle with Care. Diane opens the package and is killed instantly, along with her mother, father, brother, and sister. Her little brother is fatally injured. It's just horrifying. Who would do something like this and why? It doesn't take long to find out. Nowadays, my first thought would be terrorism, but there have been plenty of targeted bombings, one with a specific person in mind, like family disputes or revenge, mob hits, things like that. In 1980, terrorist bombings are a thing. The Irish Troubles are at their height, the Palestinian crisis, but I would say mostly those things happen in Europe. In the States, the anti-war bombings are over, so most people immediately thought the bombing was personal and aimed at the Post family directly, and they're right. The package is addressed to Diane. She is recently divorced and embroiled in a bitter custody fight over their baby Randy. Police immediately zero in on her ex-husband, Danny, not Daniel, just Danny, Eugene Crump. Danny is a 27-year-old neurosurgeon who teaches Sunday school and volunteers for Doctors Without Borders when he isn't teaching sign language to deaf children. He has been working hard to repair his marriage to Diane. Ah, uh, no. No, listeners, that's not true at all. Danny is a 27-year-old high school dropout, unemployed painter, and I don't mean artist, who likes to work on cars. He has four other children from a previous marriage who are all being raised by his parents, who did such a wonderful job with him. In his free time, he likes to do drugs with his current girlfriend, who is 17. His marriage to Diane is brief and tumultuous and over quickly. Diane has recently won full custody of their four-month-old baby, Randy. Ever since, Danny has repeatedly threatened Diane and her family. All in all, listeners, not much of a stretch to make Danny crump the prime suspect in the bombing. He is arrested the very day of the explosion. So Danny Crump is arrested, but he tells law enforcement that he refuses to speak without an attorney. No, he doesn't do that. Listeners, not that I want people to be better murderers, but my advice is always lawyer up and shut up. Crump does not do that. Later on, he'll try to argue about that, but he's told his rights, and he signs the paperwork, and he confesses to planning the bomb. It's a skillful interrogation. The suspect starts out denying everything, and little by little starts confessing to more and more things. He does try to say he didn't really think anybody would get killed. Well, listeners, gotta call BS on that. Ten sticks of dynamite. Somebody is going to get killed. On September 22, 1980, Danny Crump is formally charged 
at the Johnson County District Court with six counts of first-degree murder. This is announced by the prosecutor, Dennis Moore. In Kansas, county prosecutors are elected to the position of county attorney. The Johnson County attorney from 1977 to 1989 is Dennis Moore, who is a Democrat. We never can get away from politics, but it's not too bad in this case. Even now, it's unusual for heavily Republican Johnson County to elect Democrats. I live down there, actually not that far from where all this happened, and Dennis Moore was always in the news. He was a very interesting guy, a good attorney, and a good politician. He later serves as Kansas Attorney General, and in 1998, Moore is elected to Congress from the district that contains Johnson County, although he just served one term there. After that, in his private practice, he was a well-regarded defense attorney, notably representing the infamous Deborah Green, the doctor who poisoned her husband and set her house on fire with her children in the house. Now, in Johnson County, really anywhere, but especially there, you don't get elected county attorney by being soft on crime. In the press conference, Moore takes a pretty hard line. He announces that a deadly, booby-trapped package was placed on the hood of a car at the, post the post home about 2.30 a.m. on Saturday morning by the suspect, Danny Crump. He also reveals that law enforcement officers are investigating a recent theft of quite a bit of dynamite from a local quarry. Other than that, law enforcement they play things pretty close to the vest. Later on, we'll find out that investigators from the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, help with the investigation, but unfortunately, there's no physical evidence that directly ties Crump to the bomb itself, like a fingerprint on some tape or a piece of the bomb or something. However, there are a couple of critical witnesses who link Crump to the explosion. Right after Danny is arrested, reporter Eric Palmer of the Kansas City Star does a very revealing interview entitled, Parents Cling to Faith in Son Accused in Bombing. Listeners, from reading this interview, I really like the way Palmer does his reporting. You know how sometimes reporters try to tell you what to think about what they're saying? Well, not this one. He just lays out the facts and lets you draw your own conclusions. Now, right at the start of the article, Palmer does say, quote, Danny E. Crump is an enigma. Unquote. Listeners, I actually don't think the suspect is a mystery at all, but I really like that the reporter lets me form my own opinion, which is Danny Crump is a whiny, little, selfish, stupid person. In fact, it makes me want to create criminally stupid and put that on the books as a crime. Danny Crump would be serving life for that alone. Just reading what people had to say about him made my head hurt. And this is his family talking about him. Here's some highlights from the article. I'll try to let them speak for themselves. Danny's father says, I gotta have faith that Danny wouldn't do nothing like that. Himself, the father of eight, the elder Crump, he's Daniel Crump, says he was so busy working when Danny was growing up that he didn't always know what his son was doing as a teenager. But he could always trust his son, Crump said. When I give him anything, he kept it. If I give something to my other boys, 
they would trade it for something. Danny drops out of high school at Gardner High School. Gardner's a little town near Olathe. When he's 16, to work on founding a startup personal computer company that later becomes known as Microsoft. No, 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 no. He drops out of high school to mow lawns at an apartment complex. Translation, to do drugs. A year later, while visiting his grandparents in Milan, Missouri, Danny meets a girl and falls in love. It was love at first sight, his sister says. Translation, Danny gets another teenager pregnant. On October 9, 1970, Danny and his first wife, Betty, are married. Danny and Betty have four children together during the eight years they are married. At the time of the bombing, the children are ages three, five, six, and eight. Danny was awarded custody of the kids. Oh my gosh, listeners, I wouldn't give this guy custody of a pet hamster, much less four kids. But, according to the article, for reasons the elder Crump did not understand, he and his wife, Ellen, took legal custody of their son's children. Because they're doing such a good job raising their own children, right? In the summer of 1979, Danny met Diane Post, quote, cruising cars down Santa Fe in Olathe, unquote. So she's 18 and he's 26. Oh, honey, big, big, big red flag. Listeners, I'm sure people tried to warn her, but what 18-year-old listens to anybody when they're in love? They marry October 27th, 1979. Not surprisingly, the marriage lasts just long enough for Diane to give birth to a son, Randy, on May 6th, 1980. Diane leaves Danny at the end of May. Danny's older sister, quote, I thought they were a beautiful couple. He loved her so much. When they separated, he used to come out here all the time and talk about how he wished they could get back together." Unquote. On June 9th, Danny goes to visit the baby at Diane's parents' home, where she is staying for the time being. He tries to persuade Diane to come back to him. When she refuses, he takes the baby and runs off. Dad, Daniel Crump, quote, All I know is what Danny told me. He said he went to see Randy. He loves his son. He was holding the baby and he asked Diane to come back to him. She said no, and Danny took off running, unquote. Danny had taken the baby to his sister's home and hired someone to keep the child so Diane would not get him back, his father said. But when he was served with legal papers, he gave the child back. What a prince. Dad, quote, he did what the lawyer told him. He knew always to obey the law, unquote. Sigh, listeners, sorry I keep interrupting with my opinion. I can't help it. And it's my podcast, and I'm not a reporter. There's an interesting incident that occurs July 6th at 2.50 a.m., as Danny stood in the yard of his parents' house, just north of Olathe, 
Danny claimed his wife or one of her brothers had shot him. Police investigated the shooting but made no arrests. Danny was in the hospital four weeks recuperating. He got out about the same time his divorce was made final, August 11th, about six weeks before the bombing. No, I guess maybe that's only about five weeks. Four weeks in the hospital is pretty bad. I couldn't find any more information out about the shooting. It's possible somebody close to Diane did it. He's certainly given the family reasons to hate him and be afraid of him. Kidnapping the baby, for example. However, I have a feeling Danny Crump has a lot of enemies. He may have thought Diane or one of her brothers did it, and that might have contributed to the motive for the bombing. If I had to guess, I wonder if maybe the shooting was a drug deal gone bad, or or even he dropped the gun and shot himself. Who knows? In September 1980, Diana's given full custody of the baby, Randy, and awarded child support. On September 11th, two dozen blasting caps and some dynamite are reported missing from the Deets Hill Quarry near Gardner, southwest of Olathe. Dad Crump, quote, I just don't believe he could do it. He wasn't smart enough to make a bomb. He's like me. I am not smart enough to do that, and I ain't that dumb, unquote. Sigh again. Okay, in case your blood pressure is still too low, I have another rant. Let's talk about another aspect of this case, custody of baby Randy. In the weeks following the explosion, Randy is in the hospital. Initially, he is put under the care of the state of Kansas. I think this is probably standard procedure in a case like this. As the judge says, quote, there was not a parent available to take care of the child, unquote. Well, yeah, because the biological father killed the baby's mother, and he's in jail. Under normal circumstances, if one parent dies, the other parent has an automatic right to their child. If the second parent is unavailable, then the child can be placed in the care of or adopted by someone else. Generally, the court first seeks to place a child with family members. Although Danny Crump is in jail, he may yet be acquitted and seek custody of Randy. Unquote. I just don't even want to think about that. The papers report that Diane's older sister and her husband are filing for custody. Quote, Randy's other grandparents, Daniel and Ellen Crump, they're other because Robert and Jeannie are dead, said they would take the child if he had no place to go, but will not fight the post for custody. Unquote. Isn't that gracious of them? During the lead-up to the trial, and even after, for a while, Randy's custody is not settled. There are newspaper stories in which lawyers and judges seriously discuss Danny Crump's parental rights. Listeners, I have no words. Okay, you know that's not true. I have lots of words, but I'll just share some of them. Are lawyers required to chuck sensibleness out the window when they walk into law school? To even be able to contemplate parental rights when a guy blew the child's mother to smithereens is beyond me. Actual words of actual lawyers and judges about this case and Danny's parental rights. Danny's lawyer. There are domestic relations all of the time when one party or the other is aggressive. 
but they often have one mutual point of understanding, that being their children. People will fight like cats and dogs, but that doesn't mean they don't both love their children. That doesn't mean they aren't both good parents. The prevailing emotional logic, no, sorry, Danny's lawyer, the only logic is that if a person killed his wife, then he should lose his parental rights. But what is the logic in that? What is the logic in that? Exhibit A, listeners, a lawyer, totally devoid of any sense on this subject. Sam Bruner, Johnson County Associate District Judge, who handles adoption cases. The watchword is unfit. That term has been defined in saying that persons convicted of crime are unfit to be a parent. I don't think those two things necessarily go hand in hand. So blowing up the child's mother while the child is in the house... There's a question in your mind, Judge, whether that's unfit? Missouri Circuit Court Judge Forrest W. Hanna. A person who harms one of his or her children could lose rights to all offspring, but I don't know if you can say there is a relationship between somebody's propensity for violence towards others, and a propensity to harm their children? The last guy I had on the criminal docket killed his wife in front of his nine-year-old boy. He strangled her, but I would never fear he would harm a hair on that kid's head. Seriously, Judge, you wouldn't? He was a beautiful father. He had just gotten back from taking the kid to a Little League game. Ah, the height of good parenting, right? I don't believe killing a spouse, as horrendous as that is, is a reason to sever parental rights. Going to jail is an involuntary absent from a child. What? Those mean old courts... Criminal courts that keep criminals away from their kids. Gosh, how awful. If while you were gone, you display an attitude of, I don't care, and you don't send Christmas cards or birthday cards or don't call and say, I love you, then you can sever parental rights. Yes, listeners, These are the actual words of people empowered to make important decisions about people's lives. Heaven help us. Thankfully, sanity does prevail in this case, and Randy is adopted by Diane's sister and her husband. They do a wonderful job raising him. Danny's first defense lawyer has to withdraw from the case before the trial is scheduled to begin. What happens is the prosecution puts a witness on their list that Danny's lawyer has represented in the past in a civil matter. Olathe's not that big a city, so these big families involved in this case um, seem to need lawyers a lot. A public defender is appointed, but he has to withdraw because he represented Crump's first wife when she sued for child support one time. Finally, they do find a lawyer, Thomas Hamill, with no conflict, but it isn't easy. The Johnson County judge Judge Jones says, quote, there are 147 potential witnesses to the case. Many of them ask their lawyers for advice. Apparently, none of them have the same lawyer, unquote. There's a bit of delay while the new lawyer gets up to speed. Then the trial starts in April 1981. 
The first line of attack for the defense is to try to exclude Danny's taped and written confession on the grounds that it was coerced. A defense psychiatrist testifies, quote, Crump would say anything to relieve stress and would be likely to make statements against his best interest without realizing the consequences, unquote. Crump cries on the stand and says, quote, I was scared to death. Over and over again, he, the detective, kept saying, you took that bomb over there and blew these people apart. I denied everything. I broke down as he kept repeating over and over again about the pieces of body spread over a city block. I broke and I started telling him what he wanted to hear, unquote. Please, he's not even held that long before he's arrested, just a few hours, and he gets breaks. In my opinion, he was given every opportunity to get a lawyer and shut up. He's just too stupid to do that. The prosecution psychiatrist and law enforcement do a good job showing the confessions a good one. The judge allows it in. The rest of the prosecution's case is a strong circumstantial one. Danny's brother, Billy Burt Crump, another genius, and remember Daniel Crump thinks Danny is the good son, invokes his Fifth Amendment right, the right not to incriminate yourself. But the prosecution has a tape-recorded statement from him that ties Danny to the dynamite from the tape. He, Billy Burt, kept watch while brother stole stuff from Dietz Hill Quarry. He also says that he was with Danny when his brother was throwing sticks into a farm pond and detonating them with wires connected to a motorcycle battery. He heard Danny discuss making a dynamite bomb out of a lamp but never heard Danny threaten to harm his ex-wife. What, really, really? You expect us to believe that? Quote, he loved her too much. If he did this, he's crazy. He's one of my best brothers, unquote. Oh my gosh, Crump family, stop saying Danny's the best you've got to offer. Ugh. A neighbor testifies that within minutes, after they saw someone take a box off the hood of a car in the driveway of the post home and carry it into the house, quote, I heard a noise and the house and everything was a hundred feet up in the air, unquote. Diane's brother, David Post, testifies that the explosion woke him up at 930 and he walked out of the house to see his father's body lying partly out of the house. Craig Weber, Diane's little brother's friend, testifies that he was playing in the yard and went inside to get a drink. A cardboard box addressed to Diane and marked Handle with Care was on the kitchen table. As Mrs. Crump, Diane, lifted the box lid, it exploded. The next thing he knew, he was buried under some rubble. So the prosecution clearly shows that Diane Crump and her family are the targets of the bomb and that the bomb was specifically constructed to go off when Diane opened it. A major witness who ties Danny to the planting of the bomb is 18-year-old Sandra Gould, G-O-O-L-D, Danny's girlfriend at the time of the murder. Sandra receives immunity for her testimony, and it is damning. According to Sandra, she and Danny smoked hashish and drove to the post house about 2.15 a.m. on September 20th. 1980. They left a cardboard box on the hood of a car in the driveway. As they drove off, Danny threw the gloves he was wearing 
out the window. When she asked about the box, Danny said to forget about it. Quote, you don't want to know, unquote. A little while later, Sandra sneaks away and calls the police to tell them there might be a bomb in the driveway of a large family's home. No, 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 that's not what she does. As far as her not knowing what was in the box, I'm calling BS on that. She knew. She even testifies to that, saying earlier Danny told her he was going to rig a lamp with dynamite to go off when it was turned in on or plugged in. No. No, these morons, Danny and Sandra, go to Danny's brother's house, smoke some more hush-heesh, and go to bed. Go to bed. You've just left a box with ten sticks of dynamite in the middle of a family neighborhood. Just imagine what could have happened. I'm a little sorry Sandra got immunity. Talk about criminally stupid. But I can see why the prosecution needed her testimony. They've got to link Danny to the bomb and the planting of the bomb. The prosecution is allowed to show the jury a number of shocking and gruesome slides documenting the condition of the victims or the pieces of the victims in the aftermath of the explosion. The defense objects, of course, and the judge does exclude some photos saying they are, quote, too gory, unquote. The confession tape from Danny is very strong evidence for the prosecution. To counter it, the defense really has no choice but to put the defendant on the stand. In the confession, Danny does try to mitigate his guilt a little, saying, I intended to bomb just a car owned by the Post and scare them so they would leave me alone. Okay, listeners, that is just total BS. If that's all you want to do, blow up a car, you don't need 10 sticks of dynamite and some elaborate booby trap. You light a stick, put it on the car, and drive off. So no, that's a total lie. Even in the confession he signed, he's lying. But the time of the trial, Danny is denying everything he said in the confession. The story, brilliant, that he comes up with is this. His girlfriend, Miss Sandra Gould, and Charles Price, an acquaintance, meaning probably drug buddy, delivered a box of explosives to the Robert Post home in Olathe. Crump says he followed the two from Price's apartment to the post home and watched as Price left a box in the driveway. Ms. Gould hated his, his ex-wife, he said. So then he doesn't do anything about it? Um, no. He's just throwing them under the bus, trying to flail around and find some excuse to get himself off the hook. I suspect Danny would throw anybody, including his own family, under the bus if he thought it would save his worthless neck. Ultimately, on the stand, Crump cries a lot and insists he's the real victim here and he just comes off as a weak little cretin. Prosecutor Dennis Moore, quote, Danny Crump committed a stupid, senseless act that caused the death of six people. Danny is a self-confessed liar, and his lies were legion. His lies go on and on. And the problem with a liar is you never know 
when he's telling the truth or if, if he's telling you the truth, unquote. The poor defense attorney, Thomas Hamill, I wonder if he was regretting his career choice at that time. He really doesn't have much to work with. In the end, he falls back on the old standby, reminding the jury that, quote, the defendant doesn't have to prove his innocence, just that there's reasonable doubt of his guilt, unquote. The jury comes back with a guilty verdict in less than three hours. Clearly, they had no doubt from the jump that the defendant was totally guilty. Three hours is barely enough time to fill out all the paperwork on a murder case. Danny Eugene Crump is sentenced to six consecutive life terms in prison with no possibility for parole for 15 years. He goes off to Lansing State Prison near Leavenworth, Kansas to serve his time. Listeners, I know this is normally when I wildly speculate, but I just don't feel like it in this case. Danny Crump was angry with the Post family. He was mad, humiliated, and vengeful. Unfortunately, he's also a psychopathic narcissist, my inexpert opinion. Other people, I think, just exist for his personal gratification. I don't doubt that he was mad about not getting custody of baby Randy, but not because he loves his son. He's not capable of that. Think about it. Where would you normally expect a baby to be on a Saturday morning? Well, with his mother, of course. If you had a shred of love for your son, would you plant a bomb near his mother then? Of course not. His plan from the beginning was to kill as many members of his ex-wife's family as he possibly could. Anybody else gets in the way? Too bad. Danny Crump stole the dynamite. He's stupid, but stupid evil people can be cunning. He figured out how to construct a booby trap package bomb and deliver it. To my mind, one of the real tragedies of this case is that he didn't blow himself up. One of those times he was practicing with the dynamite or maybe while he was building the bomb. Plus, Crump wasn't even trying to hide his intentions. He was blabbing about what he was going to do all over the place. In my opinion, that's not just because he's stupid. He's got to think that the people he's talking to are okay with this. That's just sickening to me. That his brother and girlfriend knew what he was planning. Or at least they must have had some idea in their fuzzy little brains. As far as I can tell... There weren't any legal consequences for either one of them. And I think that's a bit of a shame. However, they were very young. So I suppose I'll suspend judgment a little and hope they were so horrified by what they had a part in that they turned their lives around and became good citizens. Let's hope that's what happened. The defense does file an appeal. This happens almost always when there's a murder conviction. Usually they try to make all kinds of arguments, the idea being that if one gets shot down, maybe another one won't. Then the defendant could get a new trial or at least a lesser sentence. Of course, the first thing Crump's defense attacks is the confession, saying he was coerced into making it. They also argue that the deaths were not premeditated. The 
oh, I planted a bomb, but I never thought anybody would get killed idea. If, by some chance, that argument flies, they then submit that the only way Crump could be convicted of murder would be under the felony murder laws. We've talked about felony murder before. I won't go into all that, and it does differ from state to state. But basically in Kansas, if somebody gets killed during the commission of a felony, whoever committed the felony is guilty of murder. So the defense also throws in that the Kansas felony murder law is unconstitutional. They say there should have been a change of venue and also better jury instructions. The Kansas Supreme Court isn't having any of this kitchen sink. One last thing Crump complains about is that the jury was shown the gory, gruesome photos of the victims. This is another common argument in appeals, and it sometimes works. The idea is that this type of evidence inflames the emotions of the jury to the point that they can't make a rational decision about the defendant's guilt. Listeners, I don't think I've ranted about this issue before. Honestly, this argument inflames my emotions. In our judicial system, we put our trust in the members of the jury, sometimes to make life and death decisions, but for some reason, we don't want to give them all the information they need. You hear all the time about juries who acquit or convict and then walk out of the courtroom to find out all kinds of things which would have completely changed their decision, but they weren't allowed to hear it. In my mind, pictures of the victims and the crime scene are absolutely necessary to give the jury an understanding of the nature of the crime they're dealing with. There are a lot of other things I think judges should allow into trials, too, that they often don't. Prior convictions is one of the things I think jurors should know. In fact, if I had my way, juries would be allowed to ask questions right there in court. Wouldn't that shake things up? Okay, I'll stop. The Kansas Supreme Court agrees with me on the pictures in this case, saying, quote, we have faced this issue many times and have often said that so long as the photographs are relevant and help the jury to better understand the testimony and other evidence in the case, they are not inadmissible simply because they portray the macabre result of a violent and heinous crime." Unquote. So, in 1982, when the court issues the ruling, Crump is effectively stuck in prison for at least 15 years until he's eligible for appeal. In 1997, when he comes up for appeal, it, of course, generates a great deal of public outrage, as well, unfortunately, as anguish for the families and friends of the victims, Crump is not granted parole, and in the meantime, the Kansas laws about parole have stiffened. The parole board has been granted the option of deferring the convict's eligibility for a parole hearing for as much as 10 years, and they do that to Crump. So the little weasel files an appeal saying they shouldn't have been able to do that since he was convicted before the law went into effect, plus the law is unconstitutional anyway. The decision on that comes down in 2001. It's a really long decision, even longer than the first appeal. 
obligatory, not a lawyer, but I think from reading what the court said, they're trying to make it very clear that parole and parole hearings are not a right. They're privileges. The guidelines for the Kansas Parole Board are well established by Kansas law. Within that framework, the board is empowered to make parole decisions. Effectively, the court tells Crump to pound sand. You're in prison until you can convince the parole board it's safe to let you go. His last parole hearing was in 2018. The family rallied and the public and parole was denied. I talked about parole in Kansas in another episode of the podcast. Oh, I think maybe it was number six. I think I had a pretty good rant going on in that about parole too. I wish the families didn't have to go through this. I think even every 10 years is too much. Typically, the grounds for denial, at least in Kansas, are one, serious nature and circumstances of the case. Okay, in the Crump, in the Crump case, yeah, definitely a serious, heinous crime. Number two, defendant refuses to take responsibility. Check. Crump has never admitted he's guilty. He keeps blaming Sandra and Charles Price, that poor guy. Number three, serious public outrage. Check, 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 check. And number four, bad behavior in prison. And I checked his record. He's actually not nearly as bad as as some, but he does have some infractions on his prison record. In my opinion, number one, Serious nature and circumstances of the crime will keep Danny Crump in prison until he dies. I mean, the Unabomber only has three confirmed killings on his record. Crump killed six people. How could the public ever feel safe if he got out of prison? So yeah, I would be astonished if he ever gets out, but... I also don't have a huge amount of faith in our criminal justice system, especially when it comes to keeping murderers in jail. For now, I'm just going to put him on my mental list of people I hope die in prison soon. And I have to say, listeners, it's getting to be a pretty long list. The Crump family has a sad history after this. In 1997, Daniel Crump, the dad, we kept quoting, Danny's 71-year-old father is strangled to death in his home. At the time, there are some rumors that this was a revenge killing for the bombing. However, an acquaintance named Sean Sands is pretty quickly convicted of the murder. The motive was a fight and robbery. Interestingly, Sands is serving his time at El Dorado Correctional Facility in El Dorado, Kansas, down near Wichita. We've talked about that place before. That's where Death Row is in Kansas. If there is such a thing, it's sort of the the maximum security place where the worst of the worst are. It's where BTK and the Carr brothers are. Danny Crump is now there too. He's been transferred from Lansing. Kind of makes you wonder if they ever run into each other. There's another tragedy for the family in 2006. This is a really sad story. 20-year-old granddaughter Natasha, she'd be Danny Crump's niece is strangled to death by the father of her 20-month-old daughter. That guy, his name is, oh shoot, I forgot to put that in here. Uh, The last name is Solis, S-O-L-I-S. I think maybe it's Jose. It's a pretty common name. He's, um, his middle name was Benjamin. He is serving his time in Lansing. Robert, Jeannie, Richard, Susan James, and Diane Post, all six, 
are buried together at Oak Lawn Memorial Gardens in Olathe, Kansas. You can look at the graves on www.findagrave.com and leave virtual flowers. The remaining Post family members showed what resilient, good people they are. They picked up the pieces of their lives, nurtured the survivors of the explosion, and continued to honor their lost loved ones by the honorable way they live their lives. There is a Facebook page in the Victim's Honor called Justice for Six. I'll put the link in the show notes. It's a very uplifting Facebook page to visit. Listeners, for this episode, my sources were mainly the Kansas City Star, accounts of the events from the 80s. If you're interested in what everybody looks like, there are also some news videos out there from some of the TV stations in Kansas from 2018 when Crump was last up for parole. I I didn't look to see if there are any podcasts on the case. I don't remember ever hearing any of them, but there there might be if you look this up. And of course, I googled and wikied and went through genealogy sites, mainly Ancestry.com. The links are in the show notes. Okay, listeners, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends. If you could leave a five-star review wherever you can listen to podcasts, that would be awesome. If you can figure out how to do it on some of the platforms, I can't even find a button for leaving a review or or checking if anybody's left a review. I, I've always said I appreciate constructive criticism, but... I've decided lately that I really don't appreciate constructive criticism. I just want five-star reviews. I have my family and friends to take care of criticism for me. You can comment on the cases on the podcast website, prisoncitymurders.blueberry.net. If you are reluctant to put your thoughts out there on the internet, I get that. You can also email me your thoughts at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.